So now I'm, I'm just going to do the intro again and we'll go, we'll just keep going as long as you got enough time. Cause honestly, it's going to be another hour or something if you're okay. Yeah, it's a Friday. It's a Friday afternoon. Welcome FC Dallas curious fans to the next edition. I guess we're now actually up to episode 57. This is part two of our look back through the history of the Dallas burn phase of the FC Dallas with me again, just this last episode is uh, Dustin Christman, the El Jefe, the founder of the Inferno, first fan as we call him. Uh, he's been around this franchise and a fan of this franchise forever. And if you join us for the first half of this conversation, we are now up to the year 2000. Dustin, thanks for coming back with me uh, again for the second half of this, uh, what is essentially going to be a three hour podcast to cut into two pieces. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. All right. So for 2000. For the most part, uh, the era of allocations is over. Uh, the burn draft, Antonio Chivas Martinez, great nickname, and Alexi Carroll. Alexi, by the way, might be one of the most promising picks they've ever made that ended up going nowhere. Um, but that really is about it uh, for changes. Paul Broom becomes your full-time starter. Ted Eck becomes basically your full-time holding mid. Um, but most importantly, and perhaps the worst thing that happens is Ricardo Irabarren wears the number 10 as a marking left back and curses the burn number 10 Jersey for a decade. Yeah. I, I, I still don't know what, what, what was up with that. I, I, Cause yeah, I was sitting there saying, wait a minute. Our, our number 10 is a defender, yeah, but you know, which, which was actually kind of ironic for that season because what I remember most from that season is, uh, the Burns scored a lot of goals, but they gave up a lot of goals. They, man, they gave up a lot of goals. And the only reason why that season wasn't as bad as, you know, 98 in terms of how people remember it is the whole, we scored a lot of goals uh, part <laughs> of it. Well, the Jersey thing specifically um, caused a change in the way the club functioned prior to that. Jersey numbers were handed out by the equipment manager, Kevin Harder. And once he allowed Ricardo Irabarren to wear at number 10, our good friend Bobby Hammond put his foot down and took over the handing out of Jersey numbers and made sure that that kind of garbage never happened again. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Bobby Hammond. <laughs> All right. So unfortunately, Dustin, the most memorable game of 2000, uh, is a bad one. And that's the Clinton. Oh, Mathis. I already know which one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The Clint Mathis five goal game. People forget uh, actually that it was a six to four game. So for most of the game, it was really entertaining. I mean, lots of goal scoring and back and forth, but I remember just losing my absolute mind watching it because a lot of Clint's action was like, pick the ball up at midfield and dribble like 50 yards. And I thought, where the hell are the central midfielders? Why are we not closing that crap down? The kid, the guy just was, it's one of the craziest hot performances I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. It was like, if you would, uh, if you, you uh, Maradona's, you know, run through the entire England team uh, goal from, from uh, World Cup 86. That game was like if you had split it up into a couple or three different parts. And that's what base, what Clint Mathis basically did to the bird. Uh, because, as, yeah, as you remember, it was, you know, you look back on that game and it said, wow, good. The, 
the Burns scored four goals. They won, right? Well, no, nope. not so much. Because, uh, you know, the, the list of games where you, could, where you uh, score four goals and you lose is a pretty short one. And a list, the list of games where you score four goals and you lose by multiple goals is even shorter. And what I remember from that game is the, is the burn actually had a lead at, at some point, at, at one point. And then that's when the Clint Mathis show started. And as, yeah, as he said, the, he, the guy was basically going through the team like hot knife through butter. And it was like, what the hell is going on here? And it, it was not just like he was, you know, scoring some really fabulous goals in, you know, and well, what, what can you do? No, he was, you know, he was getting the ball with nobody around and then dribbling for a, a piece. And then, oh yeah, well, it's him and him and Matt Jordan and maybe a, a special guest defender. And, you know, he gets and of course he's going to put that away because he's Clint Mathis. And, so that was that was a truly that that game more than any other uh, game, pretty much epitomized the 2000 season because yeah. the Burns scored a lot of goals, but they gave up a lot of goals. And if I remember correctly, they had a a pretty decent record that year. They might have been almost exactly 500. Because yes, they were that year. Yeah, because that year they they brought back uh they got rid of the shootout and brought back draws after overtime. Overtime, and, yeah. And which you know, I still I still like, and um, they you know, but they had a negative goal differential, if I remember correctly, because you know they they gave up so many goals. Uh, uh, it, was, I rem- it was actually I zero. Year, it was a zero goal difference. Yeah, they scored fifty four and gave up fifty four. Wow, perfectly five hundred season. Yeah, fifty four <laughs> is a lot of goals allowed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you know, if if the FCD gives up uh, fifty four goals, you know, this season, well, assuming there is a this season, right, or next season, uh, then yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be calling for Lucci's head. Well, um, as you mentioned, the the main thing that this could be said of the burn that season was that Graziani and Christ were clicking because Graziani led the team with 15 goals and Christ had 11 goals and 13 assists. And honestly, as you mentioned before, at the end of the 2000, sorry, the 1999 season is the 2000 season with Graziani and Christ. Honestly, that's the hottest and most deadly single season duo that I can remember in club franchise history. It was ridiculous how good those guys were playing together and scoring goals. Oh yeah. And it was, it was, uh, I mean, and, and the thing about it is I think the, I think Graziani might have been a little bit underappreciated here in Dallas, largely because he was Ariel Graziani. I mean, that's amazing. And he's and and he started off he started off so hot, and people said, "Oh yeah, this guy's going to be scoring like you know 30, twenty or thirty goals for us next season." Well, he only got fifteen. I mean, we would kill somebody <laughs> only for, for a fifteen goal score these yeah, days. I know. I mean, if somebody scores ten goals for FCD this. This year or next year or any other year, uh, we're gonna be like we're gonna be yeah. you know wanting to to build a statue to the guy, yeah. and the guy scores 15 goals, and you know all anybody can uh, focus on is that the guy is you know a, a very <clears throat> flamboyant player, you know he yeah. he dives a bit, he he uh, he, he uh, you know sells the fouls, you know which 
basically you would expect out of any you know high level professional. Do you remember um, the game Graziani got subbed out? I think it was 2000, where he took a chair and went down to the end of the Cotton Bowl and sat in a chair down at the touchline by himself. No, I don't. I remember the goal <laughs> the following year where he, uh, the, the game the following year where he got subbed out and he went straight to the dressing room. Yeah, yeah. He didn't. He did not even want to sit on. Yeah, the bench. I've told stories too about the time he got thrown out of training by a coach. I can't remember which coach it was, but he got sent to the showers out of out of training once or twice too. So, you know, the yeah. guy was hard to coach, but you know, a lot of times great players are hard to coach. So it's part. Well, of Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, some play. You know, you. I mean, everybody likes to think that you want to treat every every player or every worker or whatever the same. And I, I might have this point of view because I've often in my own professional career been kind of a, a management challenge. Uh, but I think, you know, you, you've got to got to work you got to meet uh some, some players halfway i mean if the guy is getting the results for you then you know he's, you know if some guy at the end of the bench is he, he wants to be a uh a jackass then you can you know you can you know be a, a hard ass to him but if the guy is knocking in 15 goals then you know you might extend him a little bit of latitude and say you know what you know, when you start scoring 15 goals, you can start becoming a coaching headache too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, as you said, the Burden finished 500 that year and uh, finished third place in the Central Conference, the first season of Central Con- of three conferences. I, I, honestly, Dustin, that made for a very bizarre circumstances that Central Conference was holding lasted for two seasons. Well, yeah, and they, they, they changed up the playoffs, so they took the top eight teams irrespective of uh, conference. And so I think the, the burn got the Metro stars in the, the, in that opening round. Well, they got stomped by the Metro stars. Yeah. The, if I remember correctly, that, that first game uh, up at giant stadium was the burn were doing okay. And then all of a sudden they give up a, a late goal or two, and then they come out uh, that game down three points to none because that's the way they were doing playoff. They were still doing three game series, but they were just figuring out, okay, we're going to do, be doing points instead of games because we're going to allow for draws. Right. And then they come back to the Cotton Bowl and then, uh, you know, uh, the Metro Stars proceed to have their way with the. Well, Clint Mathis did. <laughs> well, you know. He had a brace like, again. <laughs> well, yeah, that year, that year, you know, Clint Mathis was, I mean, he yeah. was the Metro Stars. I mean, he was. You know, as the Metro Stars, as Clint Mathis went the burn, uh, so went the Metro Stars, and uh, you know, so yeah, you know, the fact, the fact, that, and it was, it was, it was a, the birth of, and didn't he win the MVP that year? I don't remember specifically. I'd have to look it up, but, but he certainly had a certainly he had a year that season to it was pure, truly remarkable. I mean, I remember him just dominating the league that year. And I think you and I, uh, uh, you and I had a, a sort of a disagreement at that point, where I kind of minimized the guy's talent because I said, "Well, you know, he's he made his name at the expense of the Dallas Burn, and against everyone else, he was kind of he was kind of uh, an average player." And really, I mean, is he all that good? Because I mean, because at that point, everybody was having a good having good games against the burn. And so why should we be hoisting this guy up, you know, just because he did it, you know, more so than all these other guys who were having good games. And then you, if I remember, were insisting probably correctly that no, he actually was a good player. And uh, so, 
you know, I think ultimately you were proven cr- more correct on that than I was because, you know, hey, he's uh, part of the, that 2002 World Cup team that did so well in Korea. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I kind of abandoned that theory after the <laughs> O2 World Cup. Well, he was always a little out of shape and, and probably partied way too much. Uh, you know, he's like Carlos Ruiz in that aspect, that if he had partied a lot less and worked a little harder, he might have been a U.S. player for the ages. But I certainly think the guy had talent. There's no question about well, that. Well, you know, I, I thought you were going to say uh, I thought you were going to say George Best. Oh, wait, yeah, that's which another is, which is Which is literally the only time you're ever going to hear George Best and uh, Clint Mathis in the same yeah. sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, George Best definitely drank himself out of a good chunk of his career, but I, I believe Carlos Ruiz did too. So, um Anyway, that, that, that kind of puts a bow on the year 2000. By the way, Mathis was just best 11 that year. I just looked it up. Uh, it was not oh, MVP, really? but um, certainly it was. Who was MVP? Uh, well, I only looked up Mathis. I didn't look up oh, the, okay. the season. I'm, I'm using you as my, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sitting here in front of a computer. I could look it up too. But, yeah. You know, I'd rather have you do the work. All right. Well, 2000 MLS MVP. Let's go. Here we go. Tony Miola. Wow. Wow. Oh, yeah, because the Wizards, yeah, I remember that year because nobody scored on the Wizards. And, uh, you know, they went to the uh, MLS Cup and won. All right. So, yeah, that, yeah, I think that would probably be the only time in league history that the, that a goalkeeper has ever won MVP. I'd, I'd have to look that up, too. Let's see, Kansas City. Yeah, you'd uh, have to, you would have to look that up, but I'm going yeah. to assume that I'm correct on that. They only allowed 29 goals. Kansas City did that year. They had a plus 19 goal differential. So that, that makes sense. Yeah, and they had Miklos Molnar that year. Mm. All right, let's move on to 2001. Um, the biggest loss or biggest cost of 2000 was uh, the end of Dave Durr's coaching tenure in Dallas. Um, and the club changed over to coach Mike Jeffries. Uh, putting aside what happened eventually, what do you remember back to what your thoughts were on Jeffries being named coach? Well, you know what? I, my whole feelings around that situation – have uh they they've evolved a bit over the years uh at the time i thought well you know what dave durr had his shot and it was time you know it was time for a change as the and i thought that mike jeffries i mean he came from the chicago fire which had been probably the dominant team of probably the first half of the aughts, uh, what was going to be the first half of the aughts. I mean, this was still the end of 2000 at that point. And, you know, he was, you know, he was, um, you know, you, you're going under the assumption that, well, Bob Bradley, he's a good coach. He's probably not going to be hiring a, a, any sort of dummy as his, uh, as his uh, uh, second in command. And Mike Jeffries is no dummy. So I figured, uh, you know, this is this is going to be a really great hire, and this is uh, he's going to be the hire that leads the burn to bigger and better things. Now, like I said, my my evolving my thinking on that has uh, has evolved a bit over the years, uh, and this has been largely informed by uh, you know what happened a, a couple of years later. Uh, but the the I think that probably. Mike Jeffries is probably one of those coaches. He's a good coach, but I don't know if I think he might belong to that that category of good coach that is a good 
uh, second in command rather than a first, a good first, uh, a first uh, head guy. Um, you that's, know, prob- that's probably a fair take. Yeah, I mean, because, uh, you know, you, you see all these really, in all sorts of sports, you see all these really great assistant coaches. They, they get to the, they, they get a head job and they, you know, they fall, you know, I don't want to say fall flat on their face, but they certainly, um, don't impress as much as they did when they were a, an, an assistant. And so Mike Jeffries, I mean, he was a good coach, but I think ultimately, um, I think in a in a league uh, where the talent differential between teams is as close as the as you find in MLS, I think coaching is what is a huge uh, difference that you can have between teams. And if you don't have a really great coach, if you don't have even a good coach, then you're going to eventually be found out because all those other teams are paying good money to their coaches too. Yeah. And they're going to, they're going to figure they're going to figure you out. And so, and I think that even if you don't have the horses, you can still be a leader of men and you can still, uh, you know, get your, team to play above themselves for a number of games and cobble together and, and figure out a way to cobble together results. Um, and sadly, I don't think that Mike Jeffries was necessarily that guy. And, and the last thing I will say on his predecessor is that I think that what Dave Durr did as head coach of this team is probably in retrospect far more underappreciated than it should be because people say, Oh yeah, four to, you know, eight out of 10 teams make the playoffs every year. How tough is it to make the playoffs? You know, so what big deal that he made the playoffs every single year he was head coach. Well, at the time that he was let go, there were a grand total of two teams out of 10 that had made the playoffs every year. The burn, and the LA Galaxy. And so it, anybody who says anybody who wants to minimize the fact that they made the playoffs every year under the under Durr, anybody who wants to minimize that, well, just look at who who else did it. Well, it was the Galaxy. And oh yeah, what did they do? They were on their third coach at that point. <laughs> so, right. you know, I don't want to hear anything about how oh, all he did was make the playoffs when, you know, 80% of the league made the playoffs. Well, there was only one other team that did that too. Right, right. Well, I, the two things I'll say about Jeffries is that the first time I ever met him was at his press conference when he was hired, and he asked me to stop putting the lineup in the practice observations because he said when he was in Chicago they would read them and get like a scouting report on the on the team. And the second thing about him that has made him really unique is that um, because he had won the Herman Trophy in college, when in, in training, when they were short on personnel, when they needed an, an odd extra person or they needed to even the numbers up, he would participate in training. He would do the, not the drills, but he would do the scrimmages and the short sided things and stuff like that. As he fancied himself a player still on some level of his head. Uh, and you know, the thing that was crazy about that was that 
I believe it was in the uh, the 2003 season, which we'll talk a bunch about later, but there was a guy named Percy Oliveris that they had brought in and signed who then never played. And there was a moment late in the season where he took the chance and put in a one of the most vicious, hard, red card-worthy, straight, crunching tackles I've ever seen on Jeffries from behind. Uh, and Jeffries didn't say squat about it. He just let it go because he knew the guy has was way past his point of no return with the team was never going to play anyway. So um, those two things were what made Jeffries pretty unique, both his recognition of, of me and who I was. And then also just the idea that he would participate in drills. Yeah. So 2001, uh, if we can move on with that season, the burn drafted Joselita Vaca, nicknamed little Joe cow, by the way, one of my favorites of all time. And they drafted Eddie <laughs> Johnson and they drafted uh, a potential possible, almost rookie of the year, Ryan Suarez. Oh man. Uh, Ryan Suarez. I mean, first of all, little Joe cow. I, yeah. Didn't Pete come up with that? Nickname? No, I did, but yeah. <laughs> oh, you did. Yeah. Okay. One of my favorites. And, uh, and an amazing amount of this team's history uh, uh, comes from third-degree contributors. Um, of which you are one, by the way. Don't sell yourself short. Well, you know, I give a few bucks to the Patreon now. And back in the day, I wrote a few words. But yeah. you know, I'm not going to oversell myself either. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Ryan Suarez, God. You know what? I, I wrote a little bit about him uh, for the uh, uh, for the ranking of the top top five right backs, mm-hmm. and man, what could have been with that guy? Right. I mean, because the guy had uh, the the guy had talent. Uh, he, I mean, he was a, a he he was a two way threat. He had size. He had speed. The problem is is that you know he had he had he was one of those guys where you'd say million dollar talent, ten cent head, because <laughs> <He's Luke-a-loosh. laughs> I mean, he, I mean, yeah. because he, he, I mean, he more than anybody else that I can think of in this team's history needed really needed somebody to uh, to settle him down and say, you know, hey, calm down. You know, you don't have to, you know, win every single 50-50. Or you don't have to, you know, you don't have to win a 50-50 at the expense of a yellow card. You don't have to, you know, tell the referee exactly what you think think of that last call. And he apparently, I mean, he and the, and the thing about it was he, he was really... And he was a good guy too. I mean, you talk with him, yeah. and, and he was a good guy. But uh, on on the field, he was a, a little bit of a wild man, and that was probably the the biggest undoing of his career because he had talent uh, going both ways. And the uh, you know is and, it, and it's it's kind of tragic. Uh, little Joe Cal. I mean, the the thing I remember about him is that he came to this. Team with all sorts of um, plaudits coming in, and he was a good team. He was a good player, but I don't think he ever lived up to what the the, the hype beforehand uh, would would have um, would have led you to believe what was in store for him. 
He was out of Tauichi, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was, you know, really highly regarded out, player out of Tauichi. And, but he, I mean, the, the, the thing that he had that, that really hurt him was the fact that, well, he was not a very big guy at all. Um, yeah. And a lot of not so big guy, not so big guys do well in this game, you know, even when they're surrounded by, you know, and getting crunched by a lot of big, but a lot of smaller guys in this game play bigger than their size. Well, you know, one of whom is Oscar Perea. Right. Oscar Perea, not a terribly big guy, but he played bigger than his size. Um, he gave, uh, the problem with Vaca is he was, you know, you know. Too, you know, I don't. I, I really, ha- I really hate to say too small to play this game, but he just didn't have what it took to play bigger than what he wa- actually was. And so while he was, he was good. He was competent. Uh, I don't think he. I think the fact that he really could not step up to a high level professional um, league is probably what doomed him. Because it was a step up from where he came from. I mean, you can be the hottest stuff in youth uh, soccer, and even a high, really high-level youth setup like Tawuichi, or you can be the hottest stuff coming from a, one of the lower. Li- and you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, MLS, that's a really crappy league." Well, MLS is still probably, you know, even in those days, was still probably in the top twenty percent leagues, twenty uh, percent of the leagues in the world. And you had guys who were at least professional. And by that point in time, it was a professional enough league that you had guys that were not just crunchers, but they could also contribute a little bit on uh, going forward as well. So he was going up against, you know, guys who would crunch him, but they, you know, they, it wasn't like, you know, he was going up against donkeys and couldn't survive. He was going up against good, good players who would crunch him and he couldn't survive. Yeah. Well, going back to Ryan Suarez for a minute, I, I, he's one of my favorite burn players of all time. And that was before he came to me and volunteered to write something for us. And he wrote for a short time, a column for us, which of course the team was not particularly happy about, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the inside look into what they were doing. And as you mentioned with Joselito, um, they put a lot of weight on him. My memory is that, Basically, they used him as a 10 behind and a 3-5-2 with Graziani and Christ up top and Diego yep. Preha behind him. So he's basically driving the bus as a kid that just got drafted. Now, this he was a league signing that got drafted. It was how they did it back then sometimes. Um, and over the years, he's got, according to Wikipedia, 56 caps for Bolivia and played in two Copa Americas. So the kid had talent. It's just I don't I don't I think that you're right that they just gave him a lot of weight early on with the club in terms of where they use him in the formation. And it just was a little too much for him at that time. And perhaps the MLS being a big giant physical league with these big defenders, it was, it was just, as you say, he was just a little bit small. It wasn't just that he was short. He was also very skinny too. Yeah. And, and he's the sort of player that, you know, if only uh, North Texas SC had been around at that point, mm. I mean, cause he would have been a tremendous player to, to, to have because that, they could have given him, you know, a season or two there, get him used to the, you know, uh, American, you know, players in a professional setting. And that way, when he comes, when he's playing with the first team, you know, he's, he's more, uh, he's more, you know, in step with the way things are 
at a, at a professional level in this country. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're talking I mean, about you're talking about an era of Major League Soccer where they didn't oh, even yeah. have full teams of players. Like first round picks were walked into the team and started. There was no development oh, yeah. back then. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. And, you know, is when, you know, people, you know, like to foolishly say, in my opinion, foolishly say that the uh, the draft is irrelevant these days. Um, I, I'd say you look at the burn or the burn, the FCD's roster and today and you can see draft draftees, play, you know, playing uh, significant minutes. But, yeah, in those days. I mean, yeah, if you're a number one draft pick, you better be on the field. Ready to start. Yeah, yeah, ready to start. And, you know, he, you know, I could, I, you know, we can, we can be thankful that Paxton Pomacaw is not, you know, 15 years older than he is, because I guarantee you that he would have ended up, you know, playing the same role that Joselito Vaca would have if he had been around at that time. I mean, the, with the with the talent that he has, yeah, of course he would have been uh, you know, he he would have been on yeah. the field Paxton, even before even before he needed to be on the field. Paxton probably would have ended up like Jonathan Villanueva if you remember him, he came out of the Dallas Texans when they won the national championship mm-hmm. and then back then what, what your, only, your only choice was college he went to Virginia who I think it was Virginia who didn't play the kind of Latin style that Dallas Texans did. And he just sort of floundered and never did anything. So it's like Paxton would likely be in that kind of, he's not Latin, but he wouldn't be in that exact kind of situation. If it, if he was 10, 15 years older, when, you know, there really were no homegrowns, even Ramon Nunez had to go to college and he's, we're still talking about a year that's five years from when Ramon Nunez came in. Well, yeah. And, and that's the thing that people, and another thing that people don't appreciate is how different it is being a professional from being a really great youth player, even from other countries like Tau, you know, you, you, you know, you're coming up through Tauichi, yeah, it's it's one of the best youth systems in the world, but at the end of the day, it is still youth and not professional. Where you know somebody once said, you look, it's a completely different story when you get signed to a professional contract and you got some cigarette puffing manager who's <laughs> you know who's seen literally every player coming through the system and you're just another piece of raw meat to them. And, you know, nobody, you're not, you're not the hottest thing on earth anymore. You are just another piece of meat by some guy who cares nothing about your development. He gets paid and he will get fired or not get fired based on wins and losses. So you better be ready to, you know, go and be a professional whenever you are into in the lineup. Well, unfortunately, Dustin, 2001 is perhaps most remarkable for, again, our good friend Clint Mathis scoring what is the goal of the year at Dallas in, the, I believe it's about the fifth game of the year. I don't remember exactly which one it was, but it was a 60-yard weaving, running, slalom, even more so than the uh, than what Maradona did against England, uh, and once again, Clint Mathis killing the burn. Yep, and yeah, he was he was probably if the if the Colorado Rapids are the uh, as a team are the burn killer and the FCD killer, he was the individual more than any other who uh, caused uh, so much heartache to this 
this, this fan base because he would always find a way to score against this team. It was painful. It was in, in the most painful ways possible. Uh, you know, even when he was in L.A., he, if I remember correctly, he got a few goals against. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, and the other thing I remember from that year is I remember uh, Christos Stoichkov for the fire just, just absolutely making the burn look foolish on a, on a few occasions. He made a lot of people look foolish, but, uh, I mean, he, he made the burn look uh, foolish on a few occasions. And, you know, shockingly, uh, I think one of those occasions was when the burn faced uh, Chicago in the playoffs that year. I'd have to look that up. Risa Koshkov is one of my favorite players of all time. I, in fact, have a picture of him scoring for uh, Bulgaria against Argentina at the Cotton Bowl in the World Cup, a picture I took from my own phone. Oh, he he belongs to my, my rogues gallery. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I hate the guy. I see the guy now on uh, Univision and I immediately want to switch the channel. <laughs> I don't blame you. Because like, I don't, I, you know, I, I've been learning, I've been trying to learn Spanish. And so I can understand about, uh, 20% of what comes out of the people's mouths on uh, Univision. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, whenever he says something, I don't understand it, but I'm convinced that it's already bullshit. You know, when just because it's coming out of his mouth. Yeah, haters gonna hate, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm a Christo hater. Yeah. Well, 2001 obviously uh, is the 9/11 season, and obviously yep. the back end of the season was truncated by 9/11. Uh, the burn only played 26 games, uh, shortened the Boy, season. I, I, we really can't identify with that sort of thing. I know. We? That's Well, that's one of the things I've talked about right away uh, with this current season was, okay, we've shortened the season before. Um, I, I in, the, in the context of everything else that went on around 9-11, it's hard to remember much about the context with the burn other than the league initially took like a two-week, okay, stop, we're going to cancel games. And then they ended up canceling the whole season. Well, they, they, well, it was the, the final two weeks of the season. Is that all it was? And then, yeah, yeah. So, and then they, then they, um, and I think at that point it was, uh, people had played mostly, it was a 28 game season. And mm-hmm. I think every, most everyone had played at 26, yeah. but there were, there was like a, one or two teams that had played 25 and 27, you know how to go. Yeah. Some of them were and, on 27. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, they just said, okay, we're going to just finish the season and go straight into the playoffs, you know, based on, and they seeded based on points per game, which right. is how uh, the burn had fewer points than the, than the wizards, but uh, ended up being in the playoffs ahead of the wizards. Uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they definitely got it. I remember that they got in with, with more less points because it was the points per game scenario. I didn't remember that it was Kansas city, but it, as you say that, that sounds familiar in my head. It made for a very surreal sort of playoff structure. And I do know that, um, once again, they got to face the Chicago Fire, as you mentioned, in the playoffs. Um, it was not a good series for the burn. They got, got stomped 0-2 in Chicago, and then they, they tied at home uh, to force game three. And as you said, because back then it was the points structure. We Again, we were dealing with three conferences also, which complicated matters. And they ended up losing again in... Uh, game three up in Chicago. So effectively you were looking at a lost tie loss. Uh, that is an exceedingly painful three game set by your, your Dallas burn at the time. 
Yeah, you know what? You know, uh, uh, and that was the last we ever saw of the uh, the Tampa Bay Mutiny as well. Um, yes, because yeah, when you know they didn't make, they were probably that year they were one of the worst teams in league history. So obviously they didn't make the playoffs. And then when nine eleven happened, that was the end of their season, and as it turned out, the end of their existence. Um, yeah, and the Miami Fusion that year were fantastic. One of the yeah, best they were teams the we've ever seen. They, they were they were the supporter shield winners. Yeah. Um. And it it uh, uh for and it forever cemented uh, Ray Hudson's uh, legacy in American soccer lore. Well, if you if if one were into soccer on a more national scene, that that 2001 Miami team is honestly probably worth a you know an hour long podcast just by itself because that team was absolutely phenomenal not that we need to get into it here but it was a truly remarkable team and they and we talked about how cheaply the the hunts run fc dallas but oh my god the stories you hear about how the how things went in miami that final year where they didn't where they didn't even have things like ice for practices you know, because mm. you need, you know, you players need to ice down things at the end of practice, whether they're injured or, you know, just, you know, just for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, you know, they didn't even have, they had to go out and get ice from the local, you know, 7 Eleven or whatever. They didn't have an ice machine there. And they, they, in, in every single way, they were probably run more cheaply that year than, according to the stories that I read, than the burn or run in their league run days. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not that the league spent a whole lot of money on the burn in those years, but they ran it to a higher degree of professionalism than the fusion were run in that final year. It was, uh, that, that year was probably the most surreal year of major league soccer that I can remember. Well, up until this year. Yeah, up until uh, this year. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that brings us to 2002 and contraction. The Central Conference vanishes. Miami's the best team in the league, and they get contracted because they could not. The rest of the owners could not wait to get rid of that guy. Um, but the other important story is that Tampa Bay was contract contracted instead of FC Dallas. Now we've learned together in hindsight, all of us collectively, I think, that effectively, and we didn't know this at the time, effectively the Hunts saved FC Dallas over Tampa being contracted because the hunts were already secretly talking to McKinney and thought they could get a deal done in McKinney. Now, subsequently that deal fell apart and we ended up in Frisco, but um, I think we should never forget that the hunts effectively saved this franchise and we would not have a team here if they hadn't been willing to take on the club, even though it wasn't official for several months after that. Yeah. Well, and it, let me add to that, the fact that the, we, that, Miami was contracted and not the uh, San Jose Clash because at that point the uh, the Clash were you know taken over by uh, I think the uh, by Anschutz the Anschutz AEG uh, according to the stories I read said that they uh, they went to Horowitz and said hey we'll we'll take over the fusion you know mm-hmm. and Horowitz was like no and you know Tamp- and San Jose won the league championship that year so those two things combined probably saved the 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 earthquakes excuse me because they were the earthquakes as of 2000 and they that saved the earthquakes instead of the fusion and so you know both the both san the both of the, the earthquakes 
uh, and the and the burn were saved by the hairs of their chinny chin chins. Wow, what now, a different world the Whitley would be in, right? Yeah, and so the and so yeah, the the whole thing around McKinney. Um, I mean, it, it was wild because all of a sudden one day you you wake up and you hear that McKinney and wants to to build a stadium for the burn. And so I remember going to some of those city council meetings and and being and supporting the uh, and supporting the the team and all that. And you know they they eventually passed uh, the the funding for McKinney and the and then they pulled out. And this what I've heard what I've heard since then is that it was no big deal to the hunts that McKinney pulled out because they were already, you know, because Collin County was definitely on board. And so if McKinney didn't happen, then they had Frisco in their back pocket. Right. And so, you know, I was there, I was there at this uh, city council meetings in in McKinney and, you know, I thought this team was going to be saved when the, Vote uh, and they voted to, to fund it, and then I thought, oh God, we're dead. When they pulled out, and then when uh, Frisco happened, I was uh, already once bitten, uh, so I was not like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not getting too excited until you know there's shovels in the ground, and and so yeah, I mean, McKinney, that was that was uh, so, and, and that and that all of a sudden happened, you know. All of this, McKinney, Frisco, it all happened within a few months, if I remember correctly. I mean, it, it was just like a whirlwind. Yeah, it was a and, whirlwind. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the thing about it is that the, the burn got a better deal by McKinney pulling out than they than they would have gotten. Probably. Because if I rem- you know, if I remember correctly, it was just the city of McKinney uh, putting in a certain number of dollars. Uh, like $30 million. It wasn't very much. And then uh, the Hunts would have been on the hook for the rest, which, you know, means that, you know, it, it was going to be more or less, you know, uh, Crew Stadium uh, 2.0. Right. Um, so, and then, and whereas in Frisco, you know, you had the city putting in some money, you had the county putting in some money, and then you had Frisco ISD putting in some of the money. So, you know, they were able to do a much better stadium in Frisco than they probably would have ended up with in McKinney. So, and so, I, yeah, I remember at being at the, uh, at the meeting in Frisco where they, uh, where they, they approved this. And, you know, first of all, it was a much more low key affair. And, uh, the, and at that time, because I, I remember when I moved to Dallas after college in 94, Frisco was a two-horse cow town. I mean, it was three. Nothing, it was, yeah. It, it, yeah, it was just a couple thousand people. It was a wide spot on uh, Preston Road. And, and here we are, you know, uh, you know, not even a decade later. And they're going to be spending literally tens of millions of dollars on a stadium for the little old Dallas Burn. As I was, it was it was surreal. And you know, at that point, they were already you know well on their their exponential growth. That you know, what are they now? One hundred fifty thousand people. But oh, yeah, at crazy, that point, yeah. yeah. But at that point, you know, they were already on the upslope, and they definitely wanted to 
you know, attract a lot of, you know, a, a lot of those dollars for the residents who were moving in. So, you know, smartly, I might also add, but I'm a little bit biased on that stand, on that point because <laughs> they saved my team. You're right. Well, speaking of your team, uh, 2002, uh, Jeffrey starts to rebuild the team a bit. They draft Chris Bondi, number one overall, despite the fact he blew his knee out in college. Uh, Ariel Graziani leaves and Ronald Cerritos comes in. Steve Morrow is brought in to replace Kubik, Lubus Kubik, who only played 11 games for a very short stint in Dallas. And they also brought in uh, Tim Obansu because they were basically shifting to a 4-4-2 and needed uh, two center backs. And perhaps my favorite story of the spring was that uh, the Burn drafted Josh Keller um, out of the dispersal draft. He'd been a mutiny player. Uh, and he came to Dallas and was here for a week, maybe two weeks training, and then ups and retires because he didn't like how damn hot it was basically in Dallas and gave up on his playing career. So um, the rebuild was well underway. But perhaps the biggest addition that year, and I'll, I don't know if you'll agree with me on this one, was the addition of Time Magazine's Man of the Century, Ronnie O'Brien, and I'll tell that story. Oh God, yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. I remember those stories. Yeah. Oh, the, you know, there. I, I don't know. I can't remember if the, this sort of. Yeah, it would have been in two two thousand when this would have happened. So yeah, it was the internet. Uh, it was before uh, you know Time Warner had uh, had a clue about the hijinks that people on the internet could do. Right. So. <laughs> Yeah, so Ronnie O'Brien, oh my God, you know he would if uh, if there is a Mount Rushmore, a second team Mount Rushmore for this team, <laughs> uh, he's definitely on it. Yeah, because uh, the guy, yeah, I mean he was, I mean obviously I, I would agree that he would he was the the most important acquisition of that year because I mean you look at I mean by process of elimination, I mean is he more important than Lugo Skubik? Absolutely. Yeah. More than Ronald Cerritos. I could, you know, you know, in the right circumstances, I could almost forget that he, uh, Ronald Cerritos was with this team. Right. Uh, even though he actually had a couple of years with the team. Uh, you know, Chris Bondi and... Uh, um, Tim Obansu and Steve Morrow. Tim Obansu Steve yeah. Well, Steve, Steve Morrow. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was... Uh, he, I, I liked him as uh, as a player because he was, again, one of these professional players that came yep. up through you know a real big boy league, uh, and you know it was unfortunately he's best remembered for having his arm broken in a, a, a in a celebrate in a goal celebration. It was the FA um, Cup, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he played for Arsenal, but you know no, no one's perfect. Didn't he play for Arsenal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one's perfect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he he had he added a lot of professionalism to this team, and um, and then you know you have uh, and then Ronnie O'Brien he was uh, God he I, I I love that guy. One of my uh, favorite Ronnie stories was that um, he showed up in training camp at Burn training camp before for in the middle of the season. And we were like, who's this guy? And they, they had the staff, the coaching staff actually asked us not to report on who he was because um, he was a Juventus player, if you remember. And they were, yep. Juventus was adamant to the, the burn. It says, if this gets out in the media, the deal's off because they knew with this whole man of the century stuff or whatever, that Ronnie had this big, huge following. And so they didn't, they said, if it gets out, the deal's off. And so we had to actually be quiet about it, which is one of the strangest moments in terms of reporting, but the very first game I was ever at training, I was ever at where Ronnie showed up, I was standing next to Tobias Lopez 
and the ball comes over sort of right in front of us, right, and we're, we're near midfield of this scrimmage that's happening. And Ronnie turns and rips a 40-yard a shot from like five yards in front of us into like the back post upper 90, and he starts screaming, that one's not coming back at everybody else on the field, basically. And that kind of over-the-top moment, that kind of over-the-top like, here I am, everybody, that's exactly the kind of personality he was. Yeah, and uh, the, I mean, the, the he was the thing about Ronnie O'Brien is that he provided a lot of wit to uh, the the team that it otherwise, I mean, would not. Have, I mean, because who? Quick, who were the the two wingers from the two thousand one season? Uh Jesus, um, <laughs> Antonio Martinez and. Um... Oof, goodness. I keep talking, I'll look. <laughs> well, and the the thing about it, well, I'll, I'll the thing about it is he played well on both he played well both going both ways, which I think really helped uh, uh solidify the defense because the defense was so much better in uh 2002 than it was in 2000-2001, which is the reason why the team was much better. Oh, um, one's a 352 with Broom on the left and Richard Ferrer on the right. Yeah, and you know I love Richard Ferrer, but uh, uh, yeah. a, a a right an outside back or outside uh, mid he is not. Um, but you know the, he was he was really uh, Ronnie O'Brien was really great going both ways, and so you combine his his good uh, two way play with you know, the addition of uh, Bonsu and Moro in the at the center back, and you yeah. know it's is is. It's little wonder that they were so much more solid uh, defensively than the, than they were in the previous two seasons, and you know he also, you know, prov- like, he was also a very very effective heading forward. And I think when he got in, I'm gonna you know jump ahead a little bit here. When he got injured in '03, I mean that was that was a huge reason why uh, the team performed so badly. Yeah, it was. It was. All right, where am I? I lost track. All right. Well, well it's, it's, yeah. All right. So, um, honestly, the 2002 is a pretty good season for Jeffries. The the team's moving in the right direction, right? They get they they're several games above 500 that year. Deering and Suarez are both all stars. Crisis is an all star reserve. Vak is the commissioner's pick, and Oscar Preha made the best 11. You know, and with when you add in the addition of Ronnie, and you add in, you know, the, the quality of Jason still playing up top, you know you were looking at a team that was moving in the right direction and had a positive uh, flow to it and vibe to it and a direction to it. And things were going, we felt, I certainly felt at the time uh, in a direction we wanted them to go. Things were looking up as far as I was concerned in 2002. Oh yeah. There's, there's two games that year that notably come to mind. The first is Bobby Ryan's hat trick game on June 8th, Mm -hmm. which earned him uh, the MLS player of the week. Uh, and the other is the club got its 100th win, which, strangely enough, it comes in a Brimstone Cup game against the uh, hated Chicago Fire, which is a 3-1 win. Uh, and that's sort of a red-letter scoreline, if you will, because Pareja, Christ, and O'Brien scored against Chicago that day. So fitting 100th game uh, scoreline. Oh, yeah. Now, what I, what I remember about the... Uh, uh, wasn't the, wasn't the uh, Ryan trick against Colorado... Uh, yes, Colorado Rapids on June eighth. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and I, I, I you know, I, 
I just had the opportunity to uh, digitize my uh, VHS recording of that game uh, here a couple, a few weeks back, and uh, you know uh, some of those, uh, you know the, some of those goals were pretty well taken. And this is why I say a lot of people forget that uh, uh, Ryan was, you know, a pretty effective uh, attacking player before, you know, he eventually made it made his way back into. Uh, to an out, being an outside back, um, and, and then a, but and so you know that's I think I think a lot of players have had good days against Colorado in the regular season. <laughs> regular season, yeah. Rig in the regular season, <laughs> yeah. And you know, foreshadowing, not so much in the uh, postseason. In no. the uh, postseason, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you know, beating Chicago at that point, if I remember correctly. And I, I think I was on my way back from Korea when this happened. Wasn't the, you said it was the 100th game in, in June? So I would have been back on my way back from Korea. Uh, no, Bob, Bobby Ryan, Bobby Satrick was in June. The Chicago game was on. Oh, also June, June 15th. Yeah. yeah. So I, w- I was on my way back from Korea after the uh, seeing the U.S. play in the in the uh, group stage of the uh, World Cup, and I and I uh, you know I can't remember how I found out that. Uh, Dallas had beaten, but we uh, they beat them in Bridgeview, not Bridgeview, but in oh. uh, uh, Naperville. No, nope, I got yeah, my game. This and I got my games crossed up. the The hundredth game is in August. Uh, oh, okay. the game in the game in June. You're right, is at Chicago. That is also a three run win. That's just not the hundredth game. The hundredth game is in oh, August okay. uh, against Chicago. Here, they beat them twice, three one that year. So, I mean, good year for three one wins. Yes, and uh, you know, and so, and that was the year that. Uh, the fire were in their own uh, plastic pitch, uh, uh, small stadium uh, setup. Uh, Naperville is that Naperville? Yeah, that was yeah. Naperville because yeah. uh, at that point in time, uh, uh, Soldier Field was being uh, uh, was under renovation, so they they had to uh, go play in in Naperville. Um, but yeah, so the that I mean, all I remember that year is that I mean. We had the fire's number, yeah, and it felt so good. Um, and it, yeah, it was. And I remember at some at some point in time, Jeff Bradley, when he I think when he was still working for ESPN, wrote something to the effect of, "If the burn ever played with the same fire with the same intensity <laughs> that they played the the fire, they would have won a, a, a couple of championships by yeah. this point." Shame, right? I was like, yeah, I know. And, you know, hey, you know, for, for many years, the, the Brimstone Cup was the only uh, non-open cup hardware that they had. So, uh, you know, got that going for us. Yeah. Um, my memory, my, my most enduring memories of uh, the, the 2002 season is basically how it ended. Right. And, and that's... Um, that's what you remember? With, <laughs> well, it was the last thing that happened that year. Yeah. So. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, my most, well, you know, that's how it ended. You know, that was is how it ended. Basically, with the uh, the burn losing the series tiebreaker to the Colorado Rapids again, and and it and it was and it they did they lost it really quickly too. It was like the first minute of the tiebreaker. Mark Chung. Uh, scores a really nice goal in the first minute of uh, the yeah, uh, yeah. series tiebreaker. And that was when the, uh, the Rapids had uh, Carlos Valderrama 
the probably the least remembered part of Carlos Valderrama's mm. career is when he was with the Raptors. I've forgotten that myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because where do you think he went after the uh, after contraction? Right, right. Uh, yes, other teams get uh, Taylor Twelman and uh, or the draft pick for Taylor Twelman and uh, and uh, Carlos Valderrama. I can't even remember who uh, the burn got in that dispersal. Was it Josh Keller? That was the Josh Keller pick who then was okay, turned yeah, around yeah. and retired. Yeah. Well, I didn't know if they got anyone else. Well, they yeah. also got Jeff Kassar, who is not a terrible addition. Well, Jeff Kassar is not a terrible addition, but the fact is that I, I, it was not a memorable addition. Either no, not memorable, no. He, he, he was originally with the team way right. back when. Right. Um, so, yeah, that, so, that, that game three was, again, painful. The Rapids and, and playoff pain is just a, just a tradition with this club. And, you know, the, I, I think the, the, the Burn and FC Dallas have found new and different ways to lose to the Colorado Rapids, every, you know, every single time they've lost to the Rapids, it has been in a different fashion, in a different in a, and in a equally heartbreaking fashion. Is oh, you know, oh, first you get swept, now you lose in the series tiebreaker in the first minute. Oh, now you're losing in penalty kicks. Now you're losing on an own goal in the MLS Cup final. I mean, this is how it goes with the with the Rapids. And so the reason why I remember how it ended is because it was the damn rapids. Yeah. And, and I have, and yet despite the amount of heartbreak that the rapids have caused this team, I don't have the same purple passion for them uh, that I have for other teams in the league. Like for example, uh, you know, the fire or the dynamo or I'd probably say even Kansas City. Perhaps we should, just, though, Dustin. Perhaps we should. <laughs> perhaps we should. Yeah. yeah. I mean. Yeah. And the hell they 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 pushed the they pushed the FCD pretty hard in 2016 for the supporter shield. Yeah, they did. Uh, All right. Well, unfortunately, Dustin, this brings us to 2003, and I'm sure you know where we're going with this. The Hunts officially oh take over the team. Yep. They're officially now well, You owners. could do an entire podcast yeah, on that season. You could. <laughs> the bean counters, unfortunately, take over uh, in a sense. And they cause what we affectionately call the South Lake debacle, where the Dallas Burn leave the Cotton Bowl and choose to go play at a high school stadium on turf. And not good turf, mind you. We're talking about that old 80s uh, thin layer on cement. Just horrific, horrific turf. Uh, you no, know, no, it was actually curved... field. Ter- it, it was actually field turf. I remember that. Was... Well, it may have been early, early days of field turf because it was. But yeah, it was horrible. like it was like the one of the first generations of field yeah, turf. So it was, it was like it landing was, on was, cement. Yeah, it was not. It was not uh, as. It was not the plush field turf that you get field. In, at, at, that that you get at uh, uh, at uh, say Portland. No, well, I can no. I can only imagine. On. I, I considered it at the time to be a horrific, horrific idea. I can only imagine what your thoughts about it were. <laughs> Uh, no, I think your thoughts on it are, are pretty much the same because yeah. it was literally something that did not have to happen. It wasn't like the Cotton Bowl was being renovated like Soldier Field was. It, you know, they it was it was done purely for being, as you said, for bean counting reasons. And okay, so you know, okay, even within that context. Okay, you're moving to this high school stadium and, and it, for bean counting reasons. Is it close to Frisco where you, where you know you're already moving because you've already started construction on the stadium? No, it's not. 
is it a uh, is it going to be a a good stadium uh, where you have plenty of amenities for the fans? Nope. Of course not. It's a high school stadium. You don't even have beer for the the, the fans. Is it? Um, does it have a, a a good field? Well, as you mentioned, no. No. Uh, it's got probably one of the worst fields in in league history since you know at least since the the Metro Stars or Red Bulls moved out of Giant Stadium. Yeah, it's up there, yeah. Yeah, I mean it was it was bad. Every single metric that you could have come up with, it was a bad choice, except for one. That, and that was that Hunt Sports Group was going to be paying less rent right. to the Carroll Independent School District than they would have been paying to the city of Dallas to use the Cotton Bowl. And, but in every single other way, it was horrible. Yeah. And to compound that, every single thing that bad that could have happened that season on the field did happen. Jason Christ did his knee that year yep. and put him out for, it was a season-ending injury. But even that was overshadowed by the fact that almost, it was like in the third game of the season, Ronnie O'Brien had his leg broken by everyone's favorite friend, everybody's <laughs> favorite player, Damo Kovalenko, because he was playing in D.C. at that time, and and he managed to break a, a yet another uh, burn player's That's leg. That's got to be a MOS record, right? Two broken legs by the same guy for one franchise. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, like I said earlier, once that happened, the season just went to crap. And what would have been a team that would have struggled, but would have been respectable, um, just went completely south at that point. I mean, I, I'm they they didn't win their first game of the season until the seventh game. And there yeah. were only 28 games that year. So, uh, excuse me, 30 games that year. So that we're talking literally a quarter of the season, nothing but draws and losses. Yeah. You're talking and, about, you're talking about uh, killing half your fan base because the Hispanics didn't come along. You ruined Jason Christ's run in Dallas. He never really, they, they got rid of him at the end of the year, right? It killed Jeffrey's. Yeah, no, they, he was, he was with them with, for one more year. Was he with them in 2004? Yep, yep. And in fact, I have the commemorative poster that they put out that year, almost telegraphing to the world that this was oh, going to be his last year in right. Dallas. <laughs> well, it all, all but then certainly limited his his ability after blowing his knee out. You know, um, honestly, I wonder if the club has ever really recovered from that, particularly in the loss of the fan base. They went from averaging something like anywhere from depending on the season thirteen to sixteen k. At, at the Cotton Bowl down to like 7K, and, and I don't think they've ever recovered in terms of the Hispanic market. Well, what I will say about that is they could have recovered, but I don't think they've ever put a premium on recovering that fan base. I mean, ever in the 15 years since then. Yeah. They, don't have, they, don't put, they have not put the same premium on that as, they, as the team did back when it was a league run team. Um, certainly when uh, Billy was running the team, Billy Hicks was running the teams. And when Andy Swift were, was running the team, they put a lot of premium on doing a lot of grassroots marketing to really attract uh, Hispanic fans to see the team. And then when 
Andy uh, stepped down, you know, midway through the 03 season. Um, I don't know, you know, and, and I don't know. And, you know, I don't think Andy's ever going to say publicly whether it was forced or, or, or completely of his own free will. Um, you know, they went, they turn around and hire, um, what's his name? Elliot. Greg Elliot, uh, who, yeah. Greg Elliot, whose infamous, uh, opening press conference statement is our ethnicity is winning. <laughs> and, you know, you can buy that on well, a t-shirt, by the way. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if you, if you want, if, you know, way to, tra- way to telegraph to the world that you're not going to do the same things that to, to get, uh, Hispanic fans come out to the games that you were doing uh, two sh- two short years ago, and and so the, I don't think it's ever recovered largely because I don't think the ownership has ever really put a premium on recovering it. Um, now I'm sure they would never you know say that no we we intentionally jettisoned uh, the Hispanic fan base um, of this of this team. But I don't think they've. At the same time, I don't think they've really viewed it as as important as uh, previous managements uh, did, and I think that's a real shame because Dallas is a multi-ethnic soccer town. I mean, we see that every year yep. when when El Tree comes to town when the Dallas cup is, is running and whenever the women's national team plays in Frisco and, but FCD is the only one that can't seem to get good crowds. I mean, hell Atlanta gets, I mean, gets monster crowds for every single game. You're telling me that Dallas cannot come on now, come on now. Yeah. And, but the, the thing about it is, is that, I mean, we've got this, we've got this, large set of people in town who will turn out, who will pay really exorbitant prices to see high-level soccer. Because let me tell you, they're not giving away those tickets to see L3 play over at Jerry World. Um, they're not giving those tickets away. They're, they're charging good money for that, and they'll pay that good money. They'll, pay, they'll, they'll sit on I-30 for however long to, to go to Jerry World, and you're telling me they will not sit on the Dallas North Tollway, you know, a few times a season to go up to see FC Dallas for a lot less money to to uh, yeah. to what? No, come on. I mean, get out of here. I mean, it's the it's the it's the you know it's a like I said the the ownership has never put a premium on attracting those fans back, so they haven't come back. Yeah, you're I preaching mean, to the choir there, Dustin. Oh yeah. All right. So on top of, of course, the stadium move, uh, the draft is a bust that year with Shavar Thomas and Jason Thompson in the first two rounds not panning out. Matt and Jordan ran off to Denmark, leaving DJ Countess as the number one goaltender. Brad Davis was a quality addition. I'll, I'll give him that one. But the, the uh, halfway through the season, we get one of the craziest moves I can remember happening. The burn trade, what is effectively three starters at the time, Ryan Suarez, Paul Maroon, and Chivas Martinez to the LA Galaxy, who also, by the way, were having a stinker of a season, for Ezra Hendrickson and Gavin Glinton. Now, this trade turns out, in my opinion, to be a complete bust. Uh, Glinton pays, plays only 10 games before he gets uh, injury buyout in the, in the offseason, and then Hendrickson plays, I can't remember how, left something like 16 games, I think, 
And then, but his contract's not renewed either. So essentially you traded away three young starters for two guys that were gone within a couple of months. And that bad season that uh, LA was having, they were having a, a really good season from one standpoint. Their stadium situation improved significantly because that's when the, uh, uh, whatever they're calling it these days, but it was then the Home Depot Center. That's when it opened. Um, so at least, hey, at least Ryan, at least Ryan Suarez and Paul Broom and, uh, and Chivas Martinez got an immediate upgrade in the facilities. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, at that point, the, the team was just flailing about just trying to, I mean, it was obvious that they were trying to do something. I mean, obviously, you know, at that point, they, they were quite visibly a really bad team headed for a really bad season. And so there, it was literally a, let's just throw something against the wall and see if it sticks. I mean, sort of situation. And I'm sure that, uh, Two of those, uh, two two of those three players were, uh, namely Broom and uh, Ryan Suarez. I mean, they had pretty well established reputations as, you know, let's just say hotheads. And so I could, I don't know if this is the case, or and you probably know better than I would. I could see that they probably popped off to uh, uh, Mike Jeffries once too often. And, uh, well, Suarez certainly, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could, I could uh, foresee, I could imagine one of those situations. But yeah, it was literally they were literally trying to do anything. The thing that amazed me most about that season, and I guess it shouldn't, but it it, it did, is that they fired Mike Jeffries. Not that, not that it was should should have been completely unexpected. I mean, when you're when your team is having one of the worst seasons in league history i think you should expect the coach to be fired i mean heck real madrid uh fires coaches even when they're you know when they're not running away with the league by a big enough margin so certainly i, I it was not unexpected but i don't know that it was all his fault um no i, I don't I, think I don't, yeah. I don't think he helped i don't think he helped as much as another coach could have, but I think it was certainly a li- it, it had a, a fair aroma of scapegoat. Well, you you only have to look at the season before when he made some improvements and had the team moving in a positive direction, and then to have yeah. it be as this this level of disaster only happens because of the move. But to be fair, when you had a new GM, Greg Elliott, Greg Elliott was going to want his own guy. So you know, even if yeah. it hadn't been a, if it even just been an okay season, he still might have made a change just because he could have his guy. You know how that is. I mean, his guy ended up being oh, yeah. one of the current assistants, but you know, that's hunt MO. So that's always going to happen, but you know, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And so, I mean, literally, I mean, like I said, you could do an entire uh, podcast episode on how everything that went wrong that season, my most enduring memory as a supporter of that team is uh, number one, I almost got into a fist fight with uh, a, a good friend of yours and mine, uh, Kevin Lindstrom. Oh, wow. At the end of yeah, at the end of at the end of one uh, loss at Dragon Stadium, and neither of us actually ended up taking a swing because at the end of the day, we're both good friends, and because both of us are, you know, uh, you know, he, he's a lawyer and I'm a software developer. You know, neither of us is a much of a fighter, uh, <laughs> but and, and we're good friends. 
okay, that's one memory. The other memory is that since they did not sell beer at Dragon Stadium, and in fact, did the Carroll Independent School District did not allow any sort of alcohol on school grounds, including Dragon Stadium. Any sort of tailgating with an adult beverage that had to be done had to be done in this adjacent open field. I forgot really that. Unde- and an undeveloped open field. So, of course, it wasn't lit. So after a game, it's what nine nine thirty. It's dark in in North Texas, and even in the summertime at that point in time. So we're all standing around in the dark after a game, you know, commiserating over yet another loss. And you know, I'm 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 thinking to myself, wow, I hope I nothing bites me, and I hope I don't trip over anything getting in and out of here with this uh, cooler full of beer. Yeah. <laughs> and so when Hunt Sports when when Hunt Sports Group finally concedes defeat after that season and moves back to the Cotton Bowl. That was that was, I was most gratified. That was an under. I was probably more gratified about that part of the move than I probably should have been. <laughs> I probably should have been. Yay, we're moving back to a big league stadium, yeah, and right. yay, we're back to one with grass in it. No, I was happy that I would not have to, you know, <laughs> perspective play or play Oregon Trail yeah. just to get a beer. Well, speaking of two thousand, let's finish two thousand three. The burn finished six nineteen and five. 23 points. That's terrible. At a staggering 64 goals allowed, 35 goals scored is not great either. That ties for the worst in franchise history. So Clark's fired. I'm sorry, Jeffries is fired. Colin Clark finishes this season, and the Burn missed and, the playoffs for the first time in their history. And let me just put a bow on that by saying it is the worst team, team a season in team history, and it is not even close. Not even close, right? Not even close. I mean, they've missed the playoffs before. Uh, you know, since. and they would miss, well, since, so, oh yeah, that's right. Since then yeah. they've missed the, the playoffs a number of years, but nothing on, nothing on that, uh, an amazing yeah. scale of abject failure on every single level. I mean, from my own perspective, Justin, you would not believe how hard it was to keep riding and covering the team that year. Oh, I heard the same thing from, uh, oh, my uh from uh, Steve Davis. Yeah, uh, I asked him about it once, and he said, "No, man, it, it, it this is this is the worst." Yeah, and uh, it was difficult. Yeah, I mean, who wants to go into a locker room and ask a team that's no. just lost the empty ninth game in that season? Oh, and, you know? and just going to training was just so abject. There was just there was no hope. They knew that they were terrible, and they just had no hope for turning it around. It, it was it was brutal, to be honest. All right, let's let's move on though. Two thousand three sucks. Two thousand four, uh, cooler heads prevail. We go back to the Cotton Bowl as you mentioned, uh, back to the best surface in the league. Colin Clark basically starts a complete overhaul of the side. Uh, Ramon Nunez is drafted out of after his freshman year at SMU. Clarence Goodson is drafted out of Maryland. Uh, Tony Mleko, who had been kept around for two thousand three, gets to play a bit. Eric Quill is added. And then they completely overhaul the defense. Simo Valcari is brought in as a six. Uh, Garlic and Scott Garlic and Jeff Kassar split time in goal. Kerry Talley, Steve Jolly, Milton Reyes, and Corey Gibbs all Milton Reyes, excuse me, and Corey Gibbs all came in. But the one guy in that list that I really want to talk about is um, for this section of the the burn section is Corey Gibbs. 
Because oh I honestly remember, I feel like, I mean, Corey Gibbs in one season is probably the best and classiest and highest level defender this club has seen. I remember him looking around sometimes going, what the hell am I doing playing in this league? Yeah, and that's the thing about it is that you could look at the guy out of, out there on the field and you could tell that he was just doing this for you know for a paycheck until he moved on to bigger and better things right uh you know you know get me the hell out of here <laughs> um yeah i mean because and uh, the irony is uh, a couple years later he would be back in the league but uh uh yeah he was i mean he was and the thing about it is he was here for such a short time is that you almost forget about him. Yeah, you do. I mean, I, mean I, I, I didn't even, I didn't even, when we were doing our ratings of the, uh, the best, uh, uh, defenders, mm-hmm. I, uh, I had almost forgotten about him until I was reviewing the tapes. Ah, oh, yeah, that's right. Corey Gibbs was here. And, um, yeah, and see, the thing about it is he didn't even really have any memorable moments. Like you said that, uh, Lubos Kubik was only only played eleven games for the Burn. Right, that shocked me because if nothing else, I remember the Lubos Kubik uh, time in Dallas for one particular moment, is where he knocked his former teammate Ante Razov into a goalpost in against the when the, the when the Burn were playing the Fire and basically knocked uh, Razov cold. Now this provided for a lot of banter between. Uh, uh, fire fans and burn fans for uh, a few weeks. And I think, um, I think the, 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 you know, at that point, uh, um, Adidas had an ad campaign where they said, I kiss football. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I kiss football. And so yeah. we, it's the next time the, the, the fire came to, to Dallas, <laughs> some of us held up a sign that says Razov, I kiss goalpost. I kiss post. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And, Oh, but see, that's the thing. I remember that time for uh, Lubos Kubik for doing that. And I don't remember anything about what you said was probably one of the best pure defender, classiest defenders that this team yeah. has ever had. Um, you know, simply because all he was was competent. You yeah. Know? <laughs> 21 games, but it was a great 21 games. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, the the thing I remember most about uh, 2004 was uh, Simo Valakari. Yeah. And because he provided pretty much the spine for what was going to be a really good uh, turnaround in subsequent, I mean, they didn't make the playoffs that year, but you know, in future years they were going to be much better because simply, and they were much better that year than they were in '03, simply because he provided a a very good spine there in the middle. He was a pure destroyer, but he did it really well. And Oscar called him criminal. Remember? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Criminal on the field. Yeah. And I remember him doing some uh, criminal things and uh, I remember him uh, uh, suffering the long arm of the law and having to spend a a game or two in in, uh, uh, on the, on the sideline because of it. And, but yeah, I mean, Colin Colin Clark really improved the the spine of the team. Um, you know, as you mentioned the defenders, you mentioned uh, 
uh, Valakari. Uh, and so they were much better. And they were, if I remember correctly, they were in playoff contention up until the last day of the season where they had the misfortune of playing the defending champions, San Jose, uh, who were also were not as good that year as they were the previous uh, Dallas had year, more wins but, than San Jose, actually, even though they finished uh, behind yeah, them. But, uh, but San Jose did just enough to, to more ties, you know, more ties. Yeah. They, they tied yeah. the game. If I remember, they tied the game and thus made the playoffs at Dallas. Is yeah. Two to two that game, actually. You're right. So the, so they were much better. And so you could see that they were, you know, laying the groundwork for something yeah. really big, you know, and everybody knew at that point that, you know, well, the that, we're going to be moving into uh, their new yeah. stadium next year. And so, okay, great. We're building to something. Yeah. Gibbs was an all-star. Jason Christ was the commissioner's pick. I don't know if you remember that, but really Ronnie O'Brien probably had the best season for the burn that year because he was an all-star and MLS best 11 with two goals yep. and 10 assists. I, I, until I was looking this stuff up, I'd forgotten that Ronnie was a best 11 that season. Well, I'd forget. I mean, I, what I remember about Ronnie O'Brien is, you know, like you uh, is I remember, I don't, you know, I don't remember, I don't remember Ronnie O'Brien in the statistical terms. I just remember him in broad terms. Like, yeah, I mean, he was an, uh, you know, I think probably one of this team's more underappreciated offensive threats. Definitely the best pure crosser, I would say. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I saw that uh, um, uh, MLSsoccer.com uh, the other day said that uh, Ryan Hollingshead is the best crosser in the league right now, which you know, great for uh, Ryan Hollingshead, but. Yeah. I was like, wow, you know, yeah. I don't even think this guy is anywhere as close to as good a one as uh, Ronnie O'Brien was. Right. Uh, but, you know, great. Yeah, you know, it was like <laughs> Ronnie O'Brien. And like I said before, his, you know, injury in at the beginning of the 03 season pretty much set the stage for that, how badly the uh, team played yes. that year. Yep. Well, one other player I think we have to talk about in 2004 um, and because we can't get away without talking about him at all, is the guy that led the team in scoring that year. And I'll give you let, give you a chance to guess who led the burn in scoring in two thousand four. Two thousand four. God. Without, don't look it up. See if you can guess. I'm not gonna. I'm not, I'm not gonna look at. I. This should be. This should be dead easy for me. You think and it, it would wasn't be. Christ? Yeah, it wasn't Christ. Um, well, hmm. I'll, not just to save airtime. I'll tell you the answer. The answer is Eddie Johnson. Twelve Eddie goals. Jo- 12 goals in 2004. Well, and that's the thing is Eddie Johnson had already been with the team for a few years by that he point. He had been, yes. And but he had not he had just not turned it on and I, I, I the first I remember of Eddie Johnson really doing something was the 05 season because, you know, you'll get to it in a future episode. Yeah, different episode. Is that, yeah, a different episode, but you know, he and uh, Carlos Ruiz were, you know, great one-two punch the next year. But I, that's the first time. But I, I didn't realize that Eddie Johnson had actually scored that many goals that year. Well, he was drafted uh, at the age of seventeen. You remember only, yeah, you know, two years or so, maybe three years before that. So you know, he's barely twenty-ish at that point. Uh, but he was a grown ass man by that point. If you remember that story, yeah, because he didn't, cause he didn't <laughs> play, play video, video games. games. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. So, you know, you, you have to give Eddie some credit for starting to come on as part of, as you said, we, we all felt like at the end of 2004, that this is a team moving in the right direction, that, that it was a team doing positive things. 
Yeah. And, you know, and this is, and I know that, you know, you're going to be doing the the rankings of coaches here later on. Later in the but, summer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, you know, I think, I think a lot of people underappreciate. Um, For sure. Uh, Colin Clark and, you know, what he did with this team simply because of, you know, who came before and who came later. You know, Dave Durr, he built the team. Oscar Perea, he won silverware with the uh, two right. two trophies with the team. And so that sort of uh, – and then, you know, Sheldon Feynman actually took the team to MLS Cup right. when, when he was coach. And so Colin Clark, I think, gets uh, overshadowed a little bit because of that. Um, because, you know, every, every other coach, you know, those three other coaches all have something, you know, you could point to, but Colin Clark, I mean, he, and after, uh, the burn fired him a few years later, he, uh, you know, he went on to become a a pretty good coach in USL, in the USL uh, championship or whatever they were calling it that season when he was, uh, coaching, uh, Carolina, I think he did, and I well, think he also Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. I remember the Puerto Rico Islanders run to like the semifinal of the Champions League. Yeah, the Concacaf Champions League. Yeah, and he was, Which and I, I think he was probably a coach that was um, whose firing you could probably say was a bit unjustified. Well, um, I definitely would say that, but we'll, we'll get into that on a later pod because that's a Dallas, that's SC Dallas era. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm only here. For, I'm only here for <laughs> yeah. the uh, for the burn stuff. Yeah. Well, we're already going two hours, Dustin. We only have so much time. Oh yeah, I know. I yeah, know. Yeah. I could talk shit. I could talk this this, this all day. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of 2004, I only I don't remember any particularly landmark wins, but they did have a five-one win over DC United that was of course lovely and then they stomped Chicago 4-1. Those are two of the better wins that season, you know, coming towards the second half as the team was progressing and we started to see growth in it as the team was improving. Yeah. And you know, like I said, there was I mean, uh 2004 was what it was. There wasn't any really I mean, there there weren't the, the sort of signature season defining moments. Uh, that you saw in other seasons, but what it was was a season in which they uh, they were building to something. Yeah, you know, it was it was one of those building seasons. Well, the last thing, Dustin, we're going to talk about uh, after the Burn failed to make the playoffs in 2004 for their second time, but that leads us to the end of the Burn era. But before we let you go, I want to hear your take on the rebrand, the change of Dallas Burn to FC Dallas. First, did you think? that a rebrand was something that should have been on the cards. And then second, what did you think of the execution of the rebrand? Well, number, I mean, one thing you got to know is that I'm not much of a marketing guy. So uh, my, my views of rebrands are, you know, it's the same stuff in a different package. Um, you know, so do I think a rebrand was necessary? I mean, you're always going to hear from me. Yeah, probably not. But if you ask somebody who actually knows something about these things, you might get a different response. Now, how was it executed? What I always say about the rebrand is that they swapped out a really crummy name for a different kind of crummy name, which is to say that I have never been a fan of the name 
FC Dallas. I, I mean, first of all, it's utterly generic. Yep. It it does not evoke anything in anybody. It's just it reminds me, you know, remember in the CFL when the the uh, the, the uh, Baltimore team they tried using Colts for a while, and the NFL said, uh-uh. So they, I think for a time they were just the Baltimore Football Club. <laughs> I don't remember that, but I'll take your word for it. Well, but it, but it's always like a play, but something calling something football club or soccer yeah, yeah. club or or baseball club is always such a. It seems like a placeholder. It's like until you get like a, a real nickname. Right, right, right. And so I was like, FC Dallas. Oh, how generic. And and then you're. You're calling yourself Football Club Dallas in a town where another team is probably the biggest name in what Americans know as football. Yeah. That's another strike against it. And then, so, and the, what, what seems so crazy to me is that the Hunts, back then, they owned, and they still do own, Dallas Tornado. Yep. And... Given that NASL uh, names before with the earthquakes and after with the Sounders and the Timbers and the Whitecaps were all the rage, why not just use a name that you already own, that people around town know? The copy almost writes itself, the triumphant return of the Dallas Tornado. Yeah. They compound it. Now, I know you like the hoops. That was my idea. Oh, is your idea? Yeah. So, yeah. Do, so do I get to blame you for the fact that I hate them? Peter blames me for it all the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, God. I, I never really liked looking like Waldo when I was wearing a t-shirt. Oh, no. Execution of the red and white hoops was not my fault. I said red and blue with white shorts. Or at the time, actually, when I first suggested it, they were still red and black. And I said, like Flamingo, red and black hoops with white shorts like Flamingo. Okay, that I'll, was my I'll consider suggestion. I'll, Okay, I'll concede that point. Yeah, but I—I I don't think I, I've never. Okay, I, I'll take. I'll put it to you this way: I was never a fan of the red and white hoops. Um, I didn't like looking like a candy cane or like Waldo or like a barber pole or I- anything else you can say about that particular design pattern. And I've never been so happy in the last decade since they. Uh, stepped away from doing that and then first going to a almost entirely red shirt and then finally into last year to the the last couple of years to the uh, deconstructed uh, Texas lag. I hate that thing. And now to what they're wearing, the the hoopish kind of thing that they're wearing in 2020. I like that. We ever see that if we ever see them, I like it too, but uh, I don't know what I suggested at this point. The team was the Dallas Burn for nine seasons, and they've been uh, FC Dallas for 16. So they are FC Dallas. The, the, the Burn are long gone. Uh, if, I, if I were had, you know, if I had Jeff Bezos kind of money tomorrow and I could buy uh, FC Dallas, I wouldn't rebrand them because why, why should I? I mean, yeah. they, they have spent more time as FC Dallas than any other team has spent as something other than, I think, the sidekicks. Well, the one saving grace I said of the name at the time was, right now it seems a little boring, but if you want to talk about Mm -hmm. like a 100 years of a franchise, it'll be perfectly fine. Once everyone's used to it, it's no big deal. Yeah, and I I think, uh, yeah, like I said, it it is what it is. Uh, It is not what I would have chosen, 
but is uh and i think it is kind of a uh, crummy name but it's not like uh you know i have this like huge nostalgia for the old name <laughs> all right dustin that's now an hour and a half of our part two of our dallas burn era historic walkthrough uh it's been fantastic my friend any final thought to wrap up the dallas burn era Oh man, uh, I think you know. I think a lot of people, and uh, you know, this is just me uh, being, you know, get off my lawn. I think a lot of people sort of, uh, and I, I might also include uh, Hunt Sports Group in this category, kind of uh, view the burn era as quote unquote the before times. Like uh, one of my one of the one of my friends on the internet who supports uh, the Red Bulls and who supported the Metro stars way back then uh, tells me that Red Bull goes out of its way to pretend like the Metro stars didn't exist publicly. Yeah. And so the hunts don't quite do that, but when this team, and I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad that they're doing something for the 25th anniversary. Yes. I wish that that sort of thing had been there for the 20th anniversary because 20 years, this, when this team turned 20 years old, it was a phenomenal milestone for the, for, for, for any soccer team in this country. Um, and I'm glad, but it's, it seems like, I think, you know, over the years of hunt sports group ownership, it seems like things that happened uh, before 2005, you know, kind of re- don't really exist unless they want to say, oh, yeah, we won the Open Cup in 97, and oh, no, we won it again. Um, it, but, you know, I don't think, I think they kind of, I think for a time they threw those days down the memory hole. I'm glad that they've been inviting um, Mark Dodd back and Dave Durr back. And I suppose eventually we're going to see, uh, uh, Jason Christ scarfing the statue, which is so. kind of, yeah, which would be great um, because he, before anyone else, was the, the face of this team. And he is still on the Mount Rushmore for this team. Yep. Um, they need to so make some glad, fences there for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, and they they seem to, you know, be all too happy to, to, to ship them off to, to Salt Lake, uh, right before they were opening the new stadium, which he helped make possible. I mean, he gave people a reason to come out to the stadium, uh, you know, every week uh, when he was, you know, scoring all those goals and being the face of the franchise, you know, for all those years. And, you know, I don't want to go so far as to say that the, that Toyota stadium is the stadium that Jason Christ built, but, he was certainly someone that fans would turn out to see. And when they were a league run team struggling for any sort of visibility they could get, he provided some of that for them. And so I'm glad that they're finally acknowledging this team's, I think, rich history. I mean, it does this team have the same history of silverware as the galaxy or DC United or the, the fire. But they're, or, or even, say, for example, Sporting Kansas City. But they're not that far behind. I mean, certainly I would put the, the accomplishments of the Dallas Burn 
above anybody, any of the nine remaining 96 teams other than D.C. and L.A., um, I, even above San Jose. I mean, yeah. San Jose won two MLS Cups and a Supporter Shield, and I would still put uh, what the Burn accomplished, you know, in those nine years above what the Earthquakes did. Back then, for sure. Um, yeah. Well, Dustin, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's been a fantastic romp through the Dallas Burn history. My man, I, I appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and chatting hey, with us. Hey, thanks for letting me uh, ramble on. It's been uh, fantastic. <laughs> I can be a little bit loquacious at times, but I, I appreciate your indulging me. Well, it's okay. It's been fantastic stuff. I, I know a great part of our fan base knows nothing about the early days of the team, and hopefully between you and myself and some of the other old guys, we can remedy some of that. All right. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast, part two, and hopefully you enjoyed part one. If you did, or if you, and if you like any of the work we do on our website or any of this stuff, be sure and support us if you feel like it's worth it at, at uh, patreon.com slash third degree. Thanks again, Dustin, for coming on this uh, version of third degree, the podcast as we romp through the history of the Dallas burn. Hopefully everybody enjoyed it and joins us next time as we start into the FC Dallas history section of the franchise and stay tuned to see who our mystery guests will be to help us with that part. So long. Mm-hmm.